Welcome to Made in Science, the official podcast of the University of Stuttgart. My name is Wolfgang Holtkamp and I'm Senior Advisor on International Affairs and your host for today. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Tian Qiu. He graduated from Xinhua University in Beijing, China with a master's degree in biomedical engineering in 2012. Then he came to Europe, to the Swiss Federal Institute for Technology in Lausanne and the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems here in Stuttgart to pursue his PhD in biotechnology and bioengineering. Since 2016, he has had a postdoc position at the Max Planck Institute and in 2019, he became a Cyber Valley Research Group leader. Today we are happy to have the opportunity to talk to him about his exciting and growing field of research, the future of robots and intercultural challenges. Ni hao and welcome, Tian. It's good to see you this morning. Very good to see you. How are you today? How do you experience summer in Stuttgart so far? Well, the summer is very cool here. I like it a lot and uh, I'm very happy to be here today. Thank you very much. Is the summer in Beijing very different from the one in Stuttgart? Oh, yes, that's very different, very hot. Uh, compared to here, it's much cooler, like you are in an air-conditioned room. Here in Stuttgart, as just mentioned, you are the leader of a Cyber Valley research group. Can you tell us what Cyber Valley is? Yes, Cyber Valley is this large research uh, association that brings together academia and industry. It has three academic partners, University of Stuttgart, University of Tübingen, and Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems. And also bring, I think, a lot of industrial partners, which bring the academia research and also the industry together to work on artificial intelligence and intelligent robotics. Intelligent robotics, how would you sort of frame that particular term for us this morning? So intelligent robotics is like the integration of sensing, perception, and actuation. So it must have these three parts in order to be called like an intelligent robot. And we want, of course, this robot to do good things for human, right? So it can do something that a human is tired of doing, or it can do something that human cannot do. And from what I understand, your special area are nanorobots. So that sounds really like a very small robot. Could you explain about that also? Yes. So I'm working on uh, micro and nano robotics for biomedical applications. So the general idea is that we want to create a small size machine, which is smaller than like the diameter of a human hair. And uh, that can travel into the uh, human body in order to perform some medical task. And these robots then play a particular role in diagnostics, I would assume. Yeah, I would say both in diagnostics and also in medical treatment. When it comes to the treatment, how will the medical doctors be prepared for actually applying then these nanorobots uh, in their daily work for the diagnostic purpose? So first of all, I should say that our research is still in the lab, right? It's, uh, our hope is that in five or 10 or 20 years, that will be finally in the clinic that physician can really use it. Yeah, and idea is that they will send these small agents into the body, into the patient's body, and try to control them and sense them in a, with a wireless way. 
so that, for example, with magnetic field or acoustic field, like ultrasound, so that they can sense it and steer it to control the robot to move to a particular location inside the human body. And for example, do a biopsy there to take some tissue out for biopsy or take some drug in for drug delivery. Your research group consists of um, scientists from many countries. Did you have to inspire them with this particular idea? Or do they come from universities, from research institutions that were also working along this line already? Yeah, I think micro nanorobotics is rather a specific area. When students come, they are not really already specialized in this area, but they found this idea very interesting and they are very self-motivated. They feel like this is very exciting if we could achieve this, and they are enthusiastic about our research. Excellent to hear here. And what they bring to their lab, besides their scientific knowledge and the excitement for this research, would also be intercultural differences, I think. How does that relate to your work in the lab? Yes, definitely. So I have students coming from all over the world. They are like international students. I have students from South Korea, also students from China, from Germany, of course. And they need to work together as a team. And there is a different international culture we need to take into account when we work. You just mentioned the intercultural situations and challenges, perhaps, in the lab. Could you be a little more specific and give us one recent example that you experienced with your team? Yes, sure. Let me give you an example. So when I discuss research topics with my group members, the group members from Asia, they tend to be a little bit more shy at the beginning. And they do not directly tell like if I'm wrong or like my idea is stupid or something like this. But for example, a German student or like from Western countries. So it turns to, out to be more direct. And then they directly tell me, oh, it's a bad idea. And I think this is a culture difference. And I will take this also into account when I talking or discussing with my group members. Now, the group members come from various countries. Do they also come from different disciplines? In other words, how interdisciplinary is your research group? Yes, definitely. So the field of uh, biomedical engineering is quite interdisciplinary. So we have chemists, material scientists, and also engineers, electrical and mechanical engineers in the group. So it's a very interdisciplinary group. And we have to gather all these expertise together in a group in order to make the system work, the robot to work. Building a research group, I imagine, is quite a challenge to find the right people from various cultures, from various backgrounds, from universities, research institutions around the world. Also, you talked about the interdisciplinary aspect of it. How would you describe your experience in building up a research group? In my opinion, building up a research group is something like building a startup company. So you need to gather the right team of people, you need to get external funding, and also equip the labs. The difference between like startup and academic groups is that the startup will finally bring a, hopefully a product into the market, but a research group will generate know-how and new knowledge, in my opinion. But in the organization way, it's kind of similar. That's a very interesting connection that you bring up here. How do you communicate the results of your work made in science to the community, to the general public? Because 
when you mentioned funding, a lot of money does come from taxpayers that finds its way into a research project. But then the other way around, how will the taxpayer know about your work? I think that's a very good question. First of all, we publish our work, and most of our publication nowadays is open access. So that it means if you want to download the work, you do not need to pay for it. It's like already paid by the author. Like people can read our research and know about the cutting edge science. This is one thing. And another is that we attend conferences, not only like specialized conferences in the field, but also general conference. I have been to the Science Week in Berlin. Like that is a public talk to the public. And also, like I think, podcasts like today is a perfect way of podcasting our science. Does that also relate to pupils, for instance, or what kind of group do you have in mind when you do the more public things? And you have been, uh, I know from our conversations, also a person who taught pupils in China. How? Would you say, would you teach today with the knowledge that you have today, about uh, 15 years later, would you teach in the same way the kind of science that you taught then? Yes, I think actually after these 15 years, I should be able to teach them in a better way with all the experience that I have been through. I think the most important thing is to tell them is not the specific knowledge about science, but to keep them interested and enthusiastic about science, right? They could have a, a science dream. I think that's the most important thing. And also, like to the public, in my opinion, we are targeting at different groups of people, maybe in different ages, as you mentioned, pupils or like high school students. We have like open days and then let them come to the lab and visit. And there's also girls' day and invite them to experience what really is in the lab, because this is really, I feel in my education, it's really something missing. When I was a child, like I was dreaming about becoming a scientist, but I had no idea what a scientist could be, right? So, and what is the daily life of a scientist? Now, I think it's a great opportunity if we could invite pupils into the lab and see like, What is it like in the lab? And also, what is the day like as a scientist? And probably that will interest them or keep them interested in science. Tian, you acquired a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Why did you decide to focus on biomedical engineering in your master's? Where's the connection? So during my bachelor's degree, I was fascinated about the idea of MAMS, microelectromechanical system or in German it's called microsystem technique. So I was fascinated by this idea. So it integrates everything like electronics, mechanics, and all the components into one chip. And then that's something good like in with this microsystem, right? And then I decide, okay, yeah, there's a microfluidic chip that I can study, for example, cells on a small microfluidic channel That will be very interesting. So that's why I chose like biomedical engineering as a master degree in Tsinghua. And then I went to the microfluidics lab. And there I studied like actually cells on a chip. So in particular, we study sperms and oocytes on a chip. And there we studied like it's called in vitro fertilization on a chip. So we are trying to reproduce the a female reproductive tract on a small micro device and to screen the healthy sperm out of it and let it fertilize the egg. 
to develop a little bit and then re-implant it into the uterus. Probably this is already cutting your your next question, right? So very close to it, absolutely, because that would lead to the PhD, of course. And you started your PhD work in Lausanne and in Stuttgart. It was a joint PhD. Why did you choose those two places, and why did you choose that joint degree program? As I said, I was studying sperm cells on a microfluidic chip, and I was fascinated by these micro, natural microswimmers that they can find their way by thermotaxis or chemotaxis. As an engineer, I always want to build something new. I think it would be super cool if I could build an artificial microswimmer that can one day swim in the human body. Then I do some literature search, and then I found a very interesting article by Professor Pierre Fisher. It was a paper about a helical microswimmer that can swim in water, and I'm very inspired by that publication. And I contacted Pear and asked whether I can come to do a PhD with him. And he accepted, obviously. Then what is the connection to Lausanne? So this is a joint PhD school. It's called EPFL. Max Planck uh, Research Center on Nanoscience, and uh, where we joined force on the micro nanosciences. So I did my research part at the Max Planck Institute for Intelligence System here in Stuttgart, but I enrolled and uh, attended lectures in EPFL in Lausanne, and finally I got my PhD there. I think when you came from Asia, from China. To Europe, to Lausanne, and to Stuttgart—very different places, all of them. How did you perceive that? Were there any challenges connected to that relocation? Obviously, you followed science.、Uh, you read the articles,、uh, the publications, and、uh, you were accepted into a program. So that had priority. But I'm sure there came other aspects with it. Actually, when I first came to Europe or I came to Stuttgart, the first impression was like the green environment here.、Right? So I came from Beijing, so it's like a big city with a lot of traffic. But here, I would say it's very green and very environmental friendly. This is my first impression. And then another, I can tell you a very interesting story. I think it's more about food, like like the different kind of food in, in Germany and in China. When I first landed in Stuttgart, I went to the supermarket to get some food because I was starving. And I looked in the fridge, and then I found like the German dumplings. Right, so you know now I know it's Maultasche. And then I was so, so super ex- excited about it. I said, "Oh, Germans also eat dumplings!" And then I, of course, bought a package and went back and cook it, boil it, and it's nothing close to the Chinese dumpling. Definitely not. But have you come to like it at all? The German dumpling. After all these years, I, I would say I get used to it. <laughs> okay, okay, that's a good answer. Always keep trying, like in science. Tian, looking into the future a little bit here, what is it that you ultimately want to accomplish with your research? What may be your grand vision that you bring to science? The ultimate goal of my research is I would like to see that the research coming out of my lab to be really used in clinic. So there are two parts. One part is like the short-term goal. Another is a rather long-term goal. I would say, like for the short term, I would say that we are developing this augmented reality organ phantom system that to help surgeons to train their surgical skills. And this is rather short-term. I really want to. 
see like the implement of this system to standardize the surgical training or help surgeons to make a better training within the next five years. I would say this is like the short term goal. And the long term goal is about micro nano robotics research. I would say really like it could make a difference to the minimally invasive medicine. And I would really like to see like one small robot really going to the patient body and help them with something. So that already addresses an issue like what role will robots play in our lives one day? Do they already in your personal surroundings play any role? Some people have uh, robots, you know, that clean the floor and uh, help out on various issues. Is there anything like that in your life? You mean robotic systems that helping me all the time? Yes, of course. Like I can't even name examples because I get so used to it. Like there's like in the mobile phones, like these intelligent assistants, right, to help you all the time. And there is also like as the robot cleaning, as you said, yes, the robot technology is coming towards us. And I, I would say this is the trend and there's no way to avoid it. We must embrace it. If that is the trend, then human beings should be prepared for that as well. Again, as a scientist, How would you address that question? The combination of technology, the robots, and human existence? Yeah, I think uh, the robots will be a fantastic tool. And also, our maybe at some point, will be our good human's good friend. So it can do something that we, we do not want to do or that we cannot achieve. So, for example, the micro-nano robots is something that the surgeons could not do at that precise level at cellular level to do a surgery, for example. Will this mean that ethics questions find and will need to find their way more than now, perhaps, into the education of students, of uh, university students, also of researchers? Definitely. So the ethics about biomedical research, as well as the ethics about artificial intelligence and robotics, they are both very important. And have you yourself already dealt with this kind of topic and perhaps even written about or did lectures about? Yes, actually, this is a rather new topic. And as researchers, we are also learning in this process. We are actually attend as Cyber Valley Group leader. We are attending ethical workshops that's organized by specialists in this field and tell us like more topics or discuss with us What is right or wrong is probably the wrong word, but uh, what is the most appropriate thing to do? What could we do? Yeah, yeah so a lot of responsibility really Definitely. comes, comes uh, into the field, but also uh, as a research group leader in your capacity of that position also, because uh, the next generation is right here on campus, right? Yes. Taking up these issues here. Tian, at the end of our conversation, we come to what we call moment seven. means we have collected seven questions that we would like to ask you and please answer them as shortly as possible. Moment one, Spätzle or Maultaschen? Uh, I would say Maultaschen actually. Moment two, one thing you could change about the world. One thing I could change about the world. Wow. No Corona? Moment three, do you have a 
souvenir recommendation that somebody should bring home from Germany. Oh, yeah, sure. The German beer mug. Ah, beer cook. Here we go. Moment four. The best advice that you have ever received. So that's um, be brave, don't uh, settle and keep going. Moment five. Your favorite place on campus. My favorite place is the lab on campus. Moment six. If I could start all over again, I would do the following differently. I think it worked out pretty nicely. I have nothing to regret, actually. Moment seven. Please complete the following sentence. The best thing about Stuttgart is... Uh, the green. Tian, thank you so much for this lovely, engaging, informative talk. We are looking forward to staying in touch and wish you the very best of luck with everything you do and with whatever is made in science by you. Thank you. Shei Shei. And Auf Wiedersehen. Vielen Dank. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. 